0: good morning. Good to see everyone at this time, our children. You guys are dismissed to Children's Church, and it is wonderful to see you guys. I see uh, some yawns. Looks like maybe we've had some late nights with Judgment House, Um, but I also see excitement, and it's just exciting to be here. Um, Children, you're going that way this morning. (laughs) A little change of plans there, change of direction. We are creatures of habit, aren't we? That's why in the Baptist Church, the only seats you can find are on the front row today, Um, creatures of habit. But it's exciting uh, to come here and and to be in this room together, together, where we can sing praises uh, to our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, recently I was reading a book that made this statement. It is always harder to live in the middle of something than it is to live at the beginning or the end. Have you ever found that true in your experience? You know, at, at the onset of an event, at the beginning of an opportunity, of a job, you're filled with excitement. You're passionate about the possibilities. You're motivated. You're just ready to get going. And then at the end, after a job completed, graduation, graduation, A house built, taxes filed, grades submitted. You're like, ah, I can relax. At the beginning, there's an excitement. At the end, there's a sense of relief and accomplishment. The hardships along the way no longer seem quite as hard as they were when you were in the thick of it. But the time in between the beginning and the end can be grueling. Think of Christopher Columbus, okay, setting sail from Europe, filled with adventure, there's excitement, there's rally, there's hope, and then when they finally spot new land, they realize they've discovered something, what a privilege it is to be a part, how exciting it is to have their journey come to a complete, but in the middle, it's mutiny in the middle, it's storms, it's seasickness. The middle is hard to live in. I think of guys who work on lawn crews in the summer. You know, come springtime, when the, the leaves start to bud and uh, it's starting to warm up a little bit, you talk to those guys, and man, they are just so excited to get on their mowers To get outside, to break a little sweat, and to just smell the fresh cut grass. They're pumped for mowing season to start. Come late summer, early fall, man, they are just like, I cannot wait to be done with this. I can't wait to have the last cut made and to winterize all my equipment. The middle is hard. The middle is hard to live in. The middle requires perseverance. The middle requires endurance. The middle requires hope. And the middle threatens victory. If you said to me that every single person you encounter is living in the middle of something, I wouldn't argue with you. I believe that's true, that we're all living in the middle of something. There is something in our pasts That shapes who we are today. And there is something that we are anticipating, something that we are expecting in our future that also shapes how we live today. Well, today you have heard read the passage from Luke chapter 19. And so if you have a Bible or you have a Bible app, I encourage you to go there. Luke chapter 19. And in chapter 19 of the book of Luke, we come to another transition In Luke's narrative for the last 10 chapters as we've been studying through the book of Luke Jesus and his disciples have been on a journey they've been heading somewhere do you remember where they've been heading Jerusalem that's right they've been heading to Jerusalem and when we get to chapter 19 it begins with Jesus and his men in Jericho Jericho was only about 18 miles from Jerusalem that's about a six, seven, eight hour walk. Okay, so he's, he's in a Jerusalem suburb. He's right on the fringe. And so they're getting close and his disciples are getting excited. They're getting excited because all along the way, Jesus has been preaching what? He's been preaching the kingdom of God. And so the disciples think that the wait is almost over. That they're almost through the middle and the wait is almost over. They think that God is going to shake the heavens and Jesus is going to be crowned king and begin his earthly reign on earth. But it's not just because the disciples are close geographically to Jerusalem that they're getting excited and thinking the wait is over. It's also because of what Jesus has just said. You see, before the passage that Marvin read for us this morning... Jesus has an encounter with a man named Zacchaeus. You may remember that story if you've grown up in church. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, not just a tax collector, but actually a ruler of tax collectors. He was like the ringleader. And Jesus told him, Zacchaeus, he was up in a tree, come down from there because today I must go to your house. And then after eating with Zacchaeus and all the religious people grumbling that Jesus was hanging out with a sinner... Jesus tells Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to your house. That's a significant statement. Jesus says, today salvation has come. Salvation is what everyone has been longing for has been anticipating. And when Jesus says, salvation has come today because I have come to your house today, Jesus is saying, I am salvation. Jesus is the one who will fix what is broken and restore all creation to God's original intent. And so hearing these words, the disciples get excited. They think the wait is almost over. But Jesus knows that before he is crowned as king, he must be crucified as a saving sacrifice. Jesus knows there's still more to go before the end will come. There's a high cost for salvation, and Jesus is going to pay that cost for us. That is why he's headed to Jerusalem on this journey. So the parable we are looking at today is aimed to help Jesus' followers understand their responsibility as they live in the middle. We see this in verse 11 of Luke 19. It says, As they heard these things, what things? The things that Jesus said to Zacchaeus about salvation coming to his house. Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. But again, Jesus knew what the disciples did not yet understand. Jesus knew that before he would wear a crown on his head, he would wear a cross on his back. And even today, Scripture tells us that we are living in the middle. Not just in the middle of something, some event going on in your life, but we are living in the middle of what God has started long before any of us were even born. Scripture, prevents, scripture presents a timeline of what might be called God's redemptive history. Okay, God's redemptive history is basically just the storyline of how God is restoring Humankind and all of creation back to its original intent. Right? Everyone has a sense that something has gone wrong with this world. Something has gone wrong in this life. Something's broken and needs to be fixed. There's change that needs to happen. Well, the Bible answers those questions of what went wrong. What needs to be fixed? Who can fix it? And where's everything ultimately going? And the Bible answers this in this unfolding of God's activity in human history called redemptive history. And so, on that timeline of God's redemptive history, we live right now, today, we live after Jesus came to this earth, lived a perfect life, died on the cross and rose from the dead three days later. And we live before His promised return, when He comes back to judge, to reign, and to rule. We are living today, church, in the middle, between the cross and the crown. That's the backdrop of our lives. That's the bigger picture that we all need to be reminded of when we come to the text of Scripture. And for every follower of Jesus, there's also a personal past, present, and future that should shape the way that we live today. If you're a follower of Jesus, then there was a time in your past when you surrendered your allegiance to living for yourself first. You let go of that You said, I'm no longer going to live for myself first. And you committed to live for Jesus first. Okay, At that time in your life, in your past, you received God's gift of forgiveness. You received the declaration that you are now in good standing with God. Your eternal destination was changed from hell to heaven. Your very nature changed. New desires were born within you. Hey, this is what a lot of people, when they refer to being born again, or when they refer to being saved, that's what they're referring to. That past event when they were changed. And it is, in this, it is because of this past exchange that one day you will experience a glorious future. Heaven will be your home. You will become like Christ, no longer troubled by the temptations without, no longer troubled by the sinful desires within. You will be given a new body, a body that resembles your body now, but a body that is free from disease, free from decay. It's not going to get sick. It's not going to wear down. And that is a glorious future. That's something to get excited about. That is hope. But none of us are there yet. None of us are there yet. Aren't you glad? We're in the middle. We're in the transition from the old to the new. We are slowly being changed from our old ways into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That change is slow and oftentimes hard. Because it's in the middle. And so the Christian life is not easy. If when you made that past commitment to turn away from yourself and living for yourself and to live for Jesus, if someone told you that the rest of your life was going to be easy, that you would be healthier, that you would be wealthier, they lied to you. And I'm sorry about that. Because the Christian life is not easy. Yes, there is a new peace that all Christians experience. There is new hope of that glorious future that is secure. But along with this new peace also comes a new war, a new battle. There is conflict between those old ways, those old desires, those old habits, and the new good desires that God has given you. The middle is tough and can lead us to cry out, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. So how are we going to live in the middle? How are we going to live in the now? The temptation is to just disengage. The temptation is to think, well, I've made that commitment in the past, I know My future is secure, so I'm not going to worry about anything else. I'm not going to get caught up. I'm just going to put this whole Jesus thing on the shelf. No big deal. Tragically for millions, I believe, Jesus is viewed as a Savior from death, but He's not viewed as the Lord of life. They've disengaged while living in the middle. And that's not what Jesus intended for us to do when he gave his life for us. All right. Well, let's look at this parable. In the parable, the nobleman entrusts ten of his servants with one minna apiece. How much is a minna? We don't really know in today's dollars. It's hard to calculate. Best guess is it's probably about four months of common wages. You know, so it's a good lump of money, but it's not, it's not a great amount of money. But that's really not necessary to understand in order to get the meaning of this parable. And, and remember that when we're talking about parables, oftentimes we're talking about Jesus trying to convey one big idea, one big picture okay so if we try to relate every detail in this parable to some item in our theology or we try to relate every detail to some application for our lives today we're gonna we're gonna make a mess out of this parable we're gonna run into some hard places and get confused right so this parable it has some shock value to it because jesus is trying to get a point across verse 13 is key look with me there it says Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. All right, so the nobleman commands each servant to engage in business. He gives them a command before he goes off to inherit and receive this kingdom. It's a responsibility that he has entrusted to them. He doesn't want them to just wait around and be idle. We also learn at the beginning of the parable that there's opposition to this king. That as he goes off to inherit this kingdom, there are enemies that send a delegation that are trying to prevent him from coming to power. They don't want this nobleman to reign over them. But as the nobleman promised, he does become king and he does return. The efforts of those who opposed him failed. And when he returns, he calls each of his servants in. It says that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Okay, so it's just assumed that they were obedient to his command. It's assumed that they were being busy during that absence, during that time away, during the middle. That they were engaging in business. And when the king returns, he wants to know, how's it gone? What have you made? So the first guy comes in, and he makes the king really happy. Because he took that one minna, and he turned it into ten additional minnas, right? So if a minna was $1,000, he turned it into $10,000, and now has $11,000. That's who I want handling my money. All right? Isn't that who you want handling your money? And I want you to notice the language of this servant in verse 16. He says, Lord, your minna has made ten minnas more. You see, when the king had given this servant one minna, the servant never saw it as his minna, as belonging to him. He always viewed it as still belonging to his master. And the response of the king is what we should all desire to hear from God one day. The king says to the servant, well done. Well done, good servant. Good job. You did what I asked. You did it well. And the master says this because of the servant's faithfulness, because of his faithfulness. And the servant is rewarded in direct proportion to his faithfulness. There's an old saying that a responsibility fulfilled is rewarded with a responsibility given. And that's how the king rewards his servant. He fulfilled one responsibility, so he gives them new responsibilities. And this is true reward. This is social mobility. He, he moves from being a steward, a manager, to being a governor, a ruler. Well, the second servant comes in, and it's the same kind of deal. He, too, took the one minna, engaged in business as his master commanded, and turned it into five minas. He, too, viewed the minna as always belonging to the master. He, too, was obedient. And again, his faithfulness is rewarded in direct proportion to what he had gained while the king had been away. So here's something to think about. The Bible talks about rewards in heaven for those who are faithful. And understand that when the Bible talks about heaven, it's not talking about the same thing that Hallmark would present to us. Okay? The heaven of the Bible, the true heaven, the real heaven, is not some spiritual abstract, it's not wings and harps and clouds. Okay? It's creation that's been renovated, that's been renewed, restored. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, and the new earth will resemble the current earth. But it will be unimaginably better. We will be able to touch. We will be able to hear. We will be able to see. We will be able to smell. We will be able to touch. We will be able to talk. We will be able to sing. We will be able to move. It will be a physical environment. People talk about pearly gates and golden streets. That's because there will be cities and infrastructure. In the new heaven and the new earth, there will be work. Because work is not the result of the fall, the sin. Work was God's original intent. But the work that will be in the new heaven and the new earth will not be work that is burdensome. and is necessary to sustain life. It will be work that is enjoyable, delightful, pleasurable, and will be to thrive in life. If you want to whet your appetite for what heaven will be like, I encourage you to pick up a copy of Randy Alcorn's book, Heaven. The title is Heaven by Randy Alcorn. It's a thick book, but it's not a fiction book. It's a Bible study. And he talks about what the new heaven and the earth might be like from what Scripture gives us. And there will be rewards in heaven. There will be rewards in heaven. Responsibilities will be delegated based on how you have lived your life now. There will be no sin, so everyone is going to experience maximum joy, but there will be different levels of reward. So so how, how do you explain that? Imagine that it's like everyone has a cup, okay? Everyone has a cup, and that cup is filled to the brim, filled to the max with joy and pleasure, But based on how you've lived your life here and now will determine the size of your cup. Some people will have bigger cups than others. Some people will get ten cities and others five cities. And it's not that the one who gets five cities is going to be jealous of the one with ten. Because the one with five cities is going to have his pleasure maxed out with those five. It's going to all be glorious so here's what I want you to take from this. If you are a follower of Jesus, you will not be rejected, but you will be inspected. How you live your life now, after that past time when you converted to Christianity, until the end comes, how you live in the middle is going to be evaluated. All of us will have to give an account for how we've lived our lives. The consequence will not be punishment. It will be reward. Various levels of reward. All right, back to the parable. From all the details that we have of this nobleman who became a king, do you like him? What do you think about this guy? Seems like a pretty nice guy. Yeah, there is some opposition at the beginning. There are some enemies that he has. We don't know why. But when he comes back, he is giving and he is generous. These servants who were managers, he promotes to become rulers and governors. He is sharing with his faithful servants a portion of his kingdom of his inheritance. We all have this sense that loyalty ought to be rewarded. And that's what this king is doing. He's rewarding those who were faithful. But then in verse 20, another servant comes in to give a report of what he has done with the minna. Verse 20, it says, Lord, here is your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you. Because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. Understand that this servant did not do what the king had commanded him. This servant did not engage in business like he was told. Instead, he took the minute and he hid it away. He laid it away in a sock drawer and a handkerchief. And so the issue is not the amount of profit that he would have made or didn't make. The issue is obedience. The issue is obedience. But why did this third steward in the, in the story, why did he fail to obey? Why did he not do with the men what he had been asked to do? Well, he says it's because he feared the master. He feared the king. And this description that he gives of the king, that he was a severe man, that he was a harsh man, that he, 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 he took what he did not lay down, he reaped what he did not sow, that, that description has troubled me before. Because in this parable, this king does represent Jesus. And by this servant saying... I feared you because you're a man who picks up what you did not lay down. You harvest what you did not plant. He's essentially calling him a thief. And so I'm like, okay, how does Jesus reap what he does not sow? Is Jesus a thief? This has troubled me. But look at the king's response in verse 22. The king says to him, I will condemn you with your own wo- words, you wicked servant. Okay, so what he had just said proves how wrong he is. You knew, did you, that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? See, the king's response is not an agreement of that servant's assessment, of that servant's description. Instead, it's a question. It's like, really, really? Really, you knew I was a harsh man? Let's think about that. If you really knew that I was a harsh man, then why did you not do what I said? Don't you think that if you truly thought I was a severe man and you truly feared me, then you would have obeyed me out of fear? You would have at least put the money in the bank so that when I returned, it had gained a little bit of interest? The king's point is that the servant's disobedience and the servant's idleness just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't compute. If he had believed the king was a very harsh man, he would have obeyed, not obeyed like the other servants out of honor and respect and love, but he would have obeyed out of fear. And it is fear that was ungrounded. It was fear that led to foolish behavior. The command of the king had no effect on his daily living. He just ignored it. So this servant's assessment of the king, it was wrong. Jesus is not a thief. But Jesus was treated as a thief. Jesus was treated as a thief When he hung on a cross between two criminals. Jesus died to pay the penalty for the crime we had committed against God. And what was that crime? What was that crime that was committed first by Adam in the garden and then has been repeated by all? It is the crime of robbing God of his glory. It's thievery. Adam, in the garden, wanted to become like God, and when he disobeyed, it was a statement of his belief that he, he didn't need to listen to God. God's command didn't really have any effect of his life. He could make decisions on his own. He could do as he pleased. Adam believed he could take God's commands, and he could leave them or he could accept them. It was up to him. He was the decision maker, not God. This was an act of exalting himself over God, putting him in the position to make decisions that was only rightfully God's position. And each of us have inherited that same bent towards wanting to be our own authority, wanting to be the decision maker of our own lives, wanting to just take God's commands, ignore some, maybe obey some, we see ourselves as the authority, just as this servant saw himself as being the own authority over this mina. He could do with it whatever he pleased. He didn't have to engage in business as his master had commanded him. So the truth is, this servant, who just laid away the mina in a sock drawer, really did not know the master. He really did not know the master like he says he did. Had he truly known the king, he would have obeyed him. And this has a correspondence with our lives. This has a correspondence with how we relate to God. We tend to look at the commands that God gives. Love your enemies. You know, love those who persecute you. Bless them. Share your wealth with the poor. Put others above yourself. And we tend to hear those commands and we say, uh, there's too much risk. I'd have to lay my comfort on the line. It feels safer to just do nothing. But if we truly know God, we will gladly obey Him because all of God's commands are issued from His character. God is good and loving and generous. And His commands are for our good. They are for our benefit that we might flourish. Obedience doesn't bring slavery. It brings vitality, and it brings vigor to life. I'll give you an example of another story in Scripture. In Luke, it's actually found in the chapter just before this. It's repeated in the other Gospels. It's the story of the rich young ruler who had lived a morally blame-free life but he was still worried about his acceptance before God. And so he came to Jesus and he he asked Jesus, he said, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Scripture says in Mark's account, Mark 10, 21, that Jesus, looking at this man, loved him and said, you lack one thing. Go, sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. We see such a radical com- command that Jesus gives to this rich young ruler to, to sell all that he has and give it away. We see that command and think, is Jesus trying to ruin his life? To give everything he has away, would that not just devastate him? We have this notion that following Jesus is, it, with a total commitment and with complete abandonment, it's going to be too risky of our comfort it's going to rob us of pleasure rob us of true life but notice that what mark says he says that when jesus sees this rich young ruler coming to him he loves him jesus is filled with compassion for the man and he wanted the man to see that he could give up his temporary wealth in order to gain what he could never lose It is knowing God, knowing His goodness, knowing His love for us that motivates us to obey His commands. Do you know the goodness of God? Let's look back at the parable, pick up at verse 24. And He said to those, this is the king who stood by, take the minna from him and give it to the one who has ten minna's. And they said to him, Lord, he already has ten minutes. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The irony is that the servant who was so concerned and just wanting to protect that minna, who just laid it away in a handkerchief, he's the only one who ends up losing the minna that had been given to him at the beginning. It's taken back from him and it's given to the one who received, who had earned 10 minas more. And perhaps when you hear that king's response, you, you say, that's not fair. That's not fair to take the guy who only has one and give it to the guy who already has 11 now. Well, whose minna had that been anyway? You see, it never really was that steward's, it never really was that manager's. It was always the master's minna. And so what this king is doing is what kings do. He was just being a good administrator. He was not going to continue entrusting his money to the guy who had been foolish, to the guy who had been disobedient. Instead, he's going to give it to the guy who had been faithful and loyal, to the guy who knows how to make a profit. I like how the New Living Translation renders this verse. It says, Yes, the king replied, and to those who use well... What they are given, even more will be given to them. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. The time to prove our trustworthiness is limited. It is the middle because there is going to be something that comes next. And when Christ returns... And you give an account to him for how you have lived your life. Will he say, well done, faithful servant? Will he commend you and reward you for your faithfulness? Or will your idleness, your disengagement, condemn you? At the beginning of the parable, we saw that there were two groups forming in relation to the king. There were those that were entrusted with this responsibility of the menas, and then there were those who were his enemies who opposed him coming to power. By the end of the parable, we see now that three groups have emerged. There are those servants who were productive, who did obey and were faithful to the king's command. We see that there were those who were counterproductive, those enemies who tried to bring him coming to power but were unsuccessful. And then we see this one servant who was simply unproductive. He was unproductive. And his result is that he is condemned. Just like those who opposed the king. In the parable, when it ends, Jesus uses severe language. He talks about his enemies being slain, being killed, being annihilated. And that does seem harsh to us, but do remember that Jesus first allowed himself to be slain, Jesus first allowed him to be crucified so that we would not have to perish. So that no one who puts his or her trust in Jesus and in that sacrifice that he made on our behalf would have to face the wrath of God, would have to be condemned and punished. But Jesus will return. Jesus will reign. He will rule. Nothing can thwart that plan of God. And those who oppose him will perish. Jesus has received all authority, and next comes his return. That's what's next on the timeline in God's redemptive history. That's what we are waiting for, is Jesus' return. And when he comes, he will come as judge, he will come as ruler, he will come as king. Will you be able to show him how you have been productive for him? Or will he condemn you because you have been idle and done nothing? The thrust of this parable is a call to be faithful. It's a call to be productive, to make your life count for King Jesus. That's Jesus' charge for us while we live in the middle. That's what your life, that's what my life is to be about. How many people, how many people would call themselves a Christian but they've misunderstood this. They, they think that they've received salvation and they've made their reservations in heaven. And so one day they know that when they die, they'll go there. But in the meantime, their Bible's on their shelf and their face in a sock drawer. They're just being idle. They're just neglecting God's call, God's commission to engage in business, to be about kingdom work, to keep expecting and anticipating the kingdom. Jesus uses this parable to get this message across. That both opposition to him and idleness are condemned. Both opposition and idleness, unfaithfulness, are condemned. So don't be idle. Don't disengage from life in the middle. Keep pursuing the kingdom. Keep investing in in the kingdom. The way you live today will determine how you enjoy that kingdom when it fully comes. The final thing that I want to say to you is, in a tone, a pastoral tone, I hope, it's a warning. Because when we hear these sermons, when we hear these messages, when we read books that that motivate us, that call us, that urge us to make the most of your life. Don't be idle. Don't waste your life. We can can heed those commands, but with the wrong motivation. And I know this because I know it in my own heart. Oftentimes, we can get excited and get motivated to do things for God, not really out of our love for God, but out of our love for our own reputation. Oftentimes, we want to be someone who has made much of our lives because that's how we want to be known by others. We want to look good. Our drive is often more for personal success than it is out of love for our King. We would rather have our name commemorated for loving Jesus than we would truly love for Jesus to be adored and worshipped. So think about the things that, that you are doing in your life that you see as your kingdom work. You see as you're doing it to serve the King Jesus, to advance His kingdom. Think about those things. And ask yourself this Would you still do it if no one even knew who you were? Would you still serve our children if they never remembered your name? Would you still volunteer and serve, give? lend a helping hand, if if you never received any kind of accolades, any praise for it, who is it that you're really wanting to hear say, well done, good job, is it Jesus or is it your peers? And on that point, I, I do want to say thank you this week especially, I've received some very encouraging emails from many of you. And, and, and I can't tell you what a blessing that has been to read your emails, read your encouragement. It's encouraged, Lindsay, as I've shared some of those with you. And so thank you for encouraging me with your words. Thank you for thanking me. As members in the body of Christ, we are called to encourage one another. And so I commend you for your encouragement. But this parable should teach us that none of us deserve praise. None of us should be expecting or even demanding honor from other people. So here's an important question. I believe this passage leaves us with, This question will help us live motivated in the middle out of a true love for the King and not just a love for our own self. And it is this question. Do you view your life as belonging to Jesus? Do you view your life and the things that you have as belonging to Jesus? That perspective changes everything. The faithful stewards, they said, here, Lord, is your minna. Not here is my minna. Here is your minna. I was faithful to do what you had asked, what you had entrusted for me to do. Do you view your life as belonging to Jesus. Second Corinthians 5.15 says that Jesus died for all that those who live might not longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul also says you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Father the price that you have paid on our behalf is one that we are thankful we will never know the burden of. Father, when we place our trust in you, you free us from the penalty that our wrongs deserve. But Father, the way that You have rewarded us is that You have given us responsibility. You have called us to be a part of Your kingdom work. You have called us to action. You have called us to live our lives for You that others may see how glorious You are. So Father, I pray that we would each be reminded from this scripture, be prompted by Your Spirit, be motivated to make the most of our lives as we await the final day when we are reunited with you. May we make the most of our lives and may we exalt Jesus Christ and not out of selfish motivations but out of pure love for who you are and what you've done for us. May the words that we sing now be an offering.
1: After that song, I don't know if I can uh, give announcements. Just thinking about how much he loves me and knowing what a wretch I am and how he still loves me, as wretched as I am. It's amazing. Knowing, thankfully, he found me. Um, For this week, uh, there's a a big gentleman in the back wearing a nice uh, blue and yellow shirt. You can find him pretty easily. He is our Deacon of the Week, Ned Beck, and he would be honored to serve you uh, if you need him in any way this week. Um, Also, uh, Sunday, November the 11th, that's our Operation uh, Christmas Child shoebox collection, so please uh, make sure that you have your stuff in by that time. No services this week uh, on Wednesday night uh, due to Judgment House. Also, we still have uh, tours available uh, for Judgment House, especially on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. Uh, Please uh, invite everybody that you can to come. Uh, daylight savings t- time, I just found out uh, this morning uh, that that uh, ends next Sunday, so we need to set back our clocks. We get an extra hour of sleep. Uh, thank you, Jesus, for an extra hour of sleep. Um, and also, uh, our Thanksgiving meal and uh, service is on Tuesday night, November 20th, so please mark your calendar for that. Uh, now for our Judgment House update. Um, I know that a lot of you are Carolina fans. Uh, If you will, please raise your hand. Congratulations on your bowl win yesterday, because that's about all the uh, excitement you're going to have for the rest of the year. (laughs) I am not a Carolina fan, as most of you know, and so I sat there with dread as my team uh, was kicking off that last punt, realizing that something bad was getting ready to take place, and sure enough, me and my three sons went crazy watching that. But it kind of made me think about Judgment House. Um, There is a passage in the scripture, and I always have misinterpreted this passage. I always thought it said that the angels in heaven uh, rejoice when one comes to know Christ. But uh, as I read this passage again, it says, In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Well, if there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels, then who's doing the rejoicing? And so, as I watched the TV pan across all those Carolina fans, Kate Setzer, celebrating uh, that great victory yesterday, I was reminded of, of Judgment House, and I was thinking, well, who's, who's celebrating in the presence of the angels? It's, it's God. He is pumped up, jacked up, just like all those Carolina fans, and I am playing Satan uh, in this Judgment House, and... I wonder what Satan's doing when one comes to know him. Uh, This week, we have had 269 folks that have gone through our Judgment House in uh, three days. We have had 54 uh, rededications uh, to Christ, which is wonderful. But more importantly, the angels got to watch their father rejoice six times already. Wow. Uh, That's an amazing thing. Um, And I look forward uh, to what he's going to continue to do through this broken, wretched church. See, the key thing is, is it really doesn't matter what we do. God's going to draw people to himself, uh, whether, you know, we put our two cents in or not. Um, But just to be a part of that, you know, I think about my scene, and and I, I think that I know the hearts of those individuals, if we would have spent this entire week working for God and We have zero salvations and zero rededications, and very few people come through. Would that still be enough? And I hope that it would be because we still got to be in the presence of our God. We still got to work alongside Him and be near Him. And really and truly, that's all I I care about over the next four days is, God, you take care of the numbers, but just allow me to be in your presence. Even in hell, Miss Lori, we can still be in the presence of, of God. Thank you, Lord. Guys, we are dismissed to our life application groups.